G'day and welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit anglicandolby.org.au. This week's sermon is entitled The Courageous Prophet and it looks at Jeremiah chapter 2 verses 3 to 14. It's part of our series called The Weeping Prophet, focusing on the book of Jeremiah. And I'm going to read the reading to you before I share the sermon with you. This is Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 3 to 14. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me, that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by bow, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look, send to Kedah and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment was a groundbreaking social experiment conducted by Dr. Walter Mischel in 1972. It was a simple enough experiment with children offered a marshmallow on a plate. They could choose to eat the marshmallow now or receive two marshmallows in the future if they didn't eat the first one. After explaining the choices to the child, the tester left the room. Some ate the one marshmallow, while others who had the courage to hold on were rewarded after 15 minutes with two. Michelle then studied the children over time and found that those who could hold on tended to have better life outcomes, better grades in school, better physical health, and even earn more money in the long run. The study is now 50 years old and contested, but it does raise a question about life choices. Do we choose the certain comfort of a marshmallow now, or have the courage to hold on for an uncertain reward? This is where we left young Jeremiah last week. God offered him the risky mission of being a young prophet to a hostile people. Jeremiah says, I'm too young, to which God replies, don't be afraid, I'll be with you. It's interesting that we never hear Jeremiah's response to God, but in the very next chapter we see Jeremiah prophesying. It seems to go without saying, Jeremiah said, God, your will be done. Today we're going to see how Jeremiah courageously takes up this call and prophesies to the people. 
It's a blunt and vivid oracle, but it's from the heart and begs the question of us. Will we choose comfort or courage? So first, the unfaithfulness, forgetting the gift and the giver. Our passage today begins with Jeremiah delivering his message from God. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. God, through Jeremiah, is saying, listen up, guys, this message is for everyone. He starts out lovingly, remembering happier times when God saved his people and they followed him out of slavery into the promised land. Sadly, they've forgotten the gift. Verse 7 says, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. Through the exodus from Egypt, God gave the people a land to live in, fruit and rich produce to eat, and freedom to live life in abundance. But the people have forgotten their gift, and more importantly, they've forgotten the giver. Verse 5 says, What fault did your fathers find in me, that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. You see, this is the anatomy of sin. First you forget who is in control, then build a belief system that affirms your actions. This is what we see happening again and again in the Bible and throughout human history. God graciously lavishes us with his gifts. We like, we like the gifts at first, but soon we take them for granted. We forget our gifts and then the giver and fall into a cycle of entitlement and abuse. In all this, we need to see that God cares. Love is risk. The giver makes himself vulnerable. He feels this rejection. A people who he loved back to life have betrayed him. In verse 8, we see that even the priests have rejected their God. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. The leaders of the nation have turned their backs on, one who on the one who gives them their authority and shoved his gifts back in his face. The imagery used here is of two lovers. The guy loves the girl so much, but the girl gets bored of his love and takes it for granted. Roses get trodden on, chocolates go in the bin. Calls go unanswered, and eventually the girl cheats on her lover. That's how God feels about his people, who have forgotten his gifts and trampled on his heart. Now, why would anyone do something like this? Well, it's because sin is comfort at all costs. There's no courage to persevere. There's no courage to make things work. There's no courage to let love live. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 9. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. This is courtroom language. God has seen generation after generation turn away from him. Israel's idolatry and sin has gone so far that God says in verse 10, Cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look, send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Kittim is Cyprus, to the west of where people, uh, to the west where people had their own gods, 
and Cana was to the east in the Arabian desert. What God is saying here is that from the east to the west, different countries have their own gods and goddesses, and they're loyal to them. But the people of the one true God have exchanged the glory of God and gave the, and the, the, the glory that God gave them and run after statues. Instead of courageously sticking to a relationship with God, Israel has chosen comfort over courage. Instead of following God, who wants them to live good, wholesome, kind lives, they've chosen the immediate comfort of the one marshmallow. They pick and choose idols from the countries around them like a religious supermarket. They choose to create a comfortable religion, one where their made-up morals would never be challenged, where acts of worship promised unimaginable blessings, and there was no such thing as sin. Friends, this is us today. You may have seen those KFC ads where people find themselves in sticky situations. To break the awkward tension, someone yells, Did someone say KFC? And suddenly everyone is scoffing down comfort food. This advertising is so effective because in Australia we worship what is comfortable. We throw off any hint of authority, drown our conscience in pleasure, and do whatever it takes to make ourselves comfortable, because that's what we think life is about. Verse 13 really sums up Jeremiah 2. My people have committed two sins, it says. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The people have forsaken the God who loves them, giving up the living water he provides. Instead, they've dug their own cisterns. Cisterns were like water tanks in Bible times. You could direct rainwater into underground cisterns to be used in times of drought. Cisterns weren't ideal because they easily cracked, letting out saved water. And they let in contaminants like animal poo and dirt, poisoning the water. Broken cistern water tasted horrible and killed crops. Anyone with access to fresh living water would never choose dirty tank water instead. But spiritually speaking, this is what the people have done. Sin hurts God, and it hurts us too. And that's why we need the Bible, the book that reads us. I'm currently reading a book called Mutiny on the Bounty by Peter Fitzsimmons, an avowed atheist. I was interested to see his take on this story because in many sense it's a spiritual story and illustrates how sin seems comfortable at first, but kills us in the long run. On April 28, 1789, acting Lieutenant Fletcher Christian had enough of his overbearing captain, William Bly, and took control of HMAS Bounty. Bly, who had sailed under Captain Cook and 18 others, was set adrift in a rowboat. The mutineers sailed their stolen ship to Tahiti, where they'd visited before the mutiny. Many of them had fallen in love with Tahitian women, but after a while some realised they couldn't stay on Tahiti forever. The British ships would be sent to bring them to justice. So, in 1789, eight mutineers took on supplies six Tahitian men and twelve Tahitian women, and some children, and set sail once again. After several false starts, trying to find an island to hide out on, they stumbled across Pitcairn Island. The remote island had plenty of fresh water, good soil for farming, and was uninhabited. 
The crew set fire to the bounty as it was evidence against them, and they set about trying to create a new world. They'd thrown off the shackles of every, every higher power, and now they were free to create a comfortable paradise of their own. At first it worked. The English sailors divided up the land and the women for themselves and began farming. As the months went by, though, tensions between the mutineers over land and women grew. The Tahitian men soon got sick of being treated like slaves, and the women didn't like being treated like property. Tensions bubbled over, the men began to fight, and the women armed themselves to protect their children. Squabbling turned to murder as this island of freedom and comfort descended into a living hell. Eventually, Fletcher Christian was so overcome by guilt and horror at, where his mutiny, at what his mutiny had done to people that he took his own life. The women took the sailors' weapons while they were drunk and holed themselves up in huts with their children. Eventually, only two men remained, Alex Smith and Ned Young, who was dying of consumption. By some miracle, the two discovered the old ship's Bible, and Young used his final days to teach Smith to read and write, getting him to copy out pages of the Bible. Young died of an asthma attack on Christmas Day. Smith, however, survived, and inspired by the Bible, he gave up alcohol and reconciled with the women. Eighteen years later, an American sealing ship happened upon Pitcairn Island. There they found a community of English-speaking Christians who lived in true peace and harmony. Fitzsimmons, remember he's an atheist, writes this, One of the most devout Christian communities in the world had grown up on the same bloodied ground that had seen the massacre of mutineers and the annihilation of the native men. A similar thing happened in Jeremiah's day. Some priests cleaning the temple discovered the book of the law, the first five books of our Bible. In 2 Kings 22, the king is brought the, the book is brought to the king, who realizes how far his people have wandered from God's will for their lives, and he weeps. Like Smith, King Josiah led a reformation movement that swept his country. He tore down temples and statues to false gods, and the whole community turned back to God. The passage, the passage from Jeremiah we're reading today comes from around that time, calling, calling the people to turn back to God. The Bible is a book that teaches us because it reads us. It exposes our hearts and makes us uncomfortable. Its uncomfortable truth means so many of us reject God's word and build our lives on comforting lies rather than the truth that sets us free. But sometimes people like Josiah, Jeremiah and the people of Pitcairn Island choose courage over comfort. And this is where, again, I want to show you how Jesus fulfills the prophecies of Jeremiah. Last week I talked about how Jeremiah prophesied the coming of the new covenant and Jesus ushers it in. And just as Jeremiah calls his people in Jeremiah 2 to come back to God, the source of the water of life, so Jesus claims that he is the living water. In John 7.37, Jesus cries out to the people, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. Friend, are you thirsty? I am. 
after a week in Australia where we saw our nation at loggerheads over rugby jerseys, where we heard about more death in the Ukraine, and the first session of Parliament featuring featured bickering over racism, the environment, and prayer. What our world most needs is living water. Over the week, I've prayed with friends who are sick, fighting with loved ones, and some are just feeling totally strung out. If this world leaves you feeling thirsty, then Jesus has good news. Come and drink. The water that Jesus offers doesn't come from human cisterns, which risk being contaminated. It is life-giving, pure, eternal water. So friend, in the week ahead, how are you going to choose courage? How are you going to drink from the water of life that Jesus offers? You might show courage by joining a small group, spending time praying and encouraging one another. You might show courage by praying for a friend who is struggling. You might show courage by just putting on some music and having an honest conversation with God. Whatever you do, friend, choose courage over comfort. It may feel like the harder path right now, but this is the path to the living water bubbling up to eternal life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.